to the Web3 Prof Podcast. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, the Web3 Prof with you here today with a whole group of people. So this is super exciting um, and going to be an interesting conversation. I have uh, Lane and Bastian, who are both from Flow, and Jacob, who is from Emerald City Dow. So I'm going to get you guys to introduce yourselves uh, one by one. Uh, let's first start with you, Lane, and get uh, an, a little bit of understanding uh, for your second visit here on the Web3 Prof podcast. Thank you so much for having me a second time. It's oh, always a pleasure. Yes. Um, hi, folks. I'm Lane LaFrance. I'm the product co-founder of Flow. I've been the Flow product since it was a CryptoKitty scaling problem. So back in 2017, CryptoKitties mm. broke Ethereum. And that was the uh, an initial foray into building a public decentralized blockchain that would scale to the masses. Awesome. Okay, thanks. Um, Bastian, can you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, I've been also with Flow since pretty much the inception. I've uh, been part of uh, the initial engineering team and have been uh, leading the design and implementation of the Cadence smart contract programming language that we're building for our Flow. Excellent. Thank you. And Jacob. Hi, everyone. Good to be on the podcast. Um, so I am Jacob. I've been in the Flow ecosystem since around uh, middle of 2020. Um, and I founded the Emerald City DAO, um, which is just a community developers who are building tools, educating developers. And uh, recently, uh, we've been auditing some smart contracts. Um, and I've been doing that for about two years now. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. So just to give uh, some context as to the foundation of the conversation here, um, uh, I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction to Digi DigiBuddies. So DigiBuddies is a project that actually my wife and I are working on with our kids, and it is a project that is um, uh, so it's a generative NFT project based on uh, five little animal animaloid characters uh, that my daughter created while she was in the hospital recovering from her 15th surgery. Uh, she is a child with disabilities and loves to draw. And so in working with some of these images, we thought, hey, can we mint these and turn this into a little project? And so um, we're in the process of doing that right now. But what's important about the project uh, that's relevant to the conversation today is that we're hoping to build in a level of composability so that other NFTs can be layered on top of our NFT project, for example, Doodles wearables. So you could buy a DigiBuddy and then place some wearables on uh, a DigiBuddy. So there are some terms there that we need to kind of dive into um but before we get into terms like composability and so on i'd love to hear um maybe uh from each of you first lane i'll get you to explain what is or who is a flow blockchain so flow blockchain is a platform a decentralized public blockchain for developers who are interested in building applications that have uh, components of value have strong uh, relationships with their communities and have a desire to tap into the creative capacity of their communities, it, it is a home for those products to live. And mm. so um, public blockchains are sort of the home of Web3. They're platforms that respect identity, data, privacy rights in ways that um, sort of the, the version of the internet that a lot of folks are on today doesn't. And uh, um, yeah, Flow is, Flow is home to that Web3 applications and especially applications where developers are thinking a lot about tapping into sort of the creative commons creative collaboration, mm. uh, community-driven development, and um, applications that that totally shape the way that we uh, interact with our favorite brands in, in new experiences in interesting ways. Excellent. Okay, that's great. And Bastian, I understand that um, Flow uses a language called Cadence. Can you, can you break that down and also maybe explain your role in that? Sure. Um, so all of these different blockchains, they have 
different, um, you know, you know, smart contract languages. Um, you have uh, blockchains like Ethereum, uh, and they have a separate uh, program language called Solidity. Um, all of these languages are pretty different from uh, typical programming languages that you would use, for example, to build a mobile app or build a website or sort of backend infrastructure. Uh, there are sort of languages that are specifically designed uh, for the needs of a blockchain environment. Uh, blockchain environments, they have a specific constraints and, uh, and also features, and sort of these languages have specific features for um, those environments. Um, Cadence specifically, uh, we have been working on it for the past four years. And it sprung out of sort of uh, using uh, other languages before. So uh, as Lane mentioned, uh, CryptoKitties was a project uh, that was built in uh, Solidity. And Solidity is used widely uh, on not just Ethereum, but other blockchains as well. And it has a lot of challenges. And sort of taking the learnings from uh, developing in that language uh, led us to sort of design a new language from scratch that has sort of, you know, unique uh, features that allow us to build our applications and allow the whole ecosystem to build their applications um, and do so in a way that's like easy. Uh, you don't have to spend a lot of time. Uh, it's safe. Uh, so you don't have to worry that you are introducing accidentally bugs uh, that might be exploited. There were a lot of, uh, you know, accidental, um, you know, uh, mistakes in other smart contracts before that got exploited uh, with millions of dollars uh, in losses. So we really want to make sure that we're building something that is sort of uh, easy to use uh, and safe by default. Um, Excellent. So Sebastian, yeah. in, in the development of the language, um, what are some key features that that set it apart from other um, languages that other blockchains might utilize? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in theory, you could uh, potentially, you know, implement your uh, idea, like you have a game or an NFT uh, in other languages too, but uh, it's it, sort of, like I mentioned before, the blockchain environment has quite some challenges. So often uh, the, uh, uh, data that you have uh, on the blockchain, they're valuable. Uh, it might be something like a fungible token, sort of you know, money on the chain, some coins or tokens. And uh, it might be an NFT uh, that you have. And uh, there are certain properties about those assets that you have. They're valuable. So you want to ensure that they are not accidentally lost. Sort of in some languages, it's really easy to just uh, forget and something falls on the floor and you keep walking and oh i, I lost my my wallet uh that's bad the same as like uh theft uh right like if if i have like uh some coins uh, in my account i want to make sure that it's not stolen um and uh cadence has like built in features to make sure that that uh, does not happen and it cannot happen sort of if you're writing a smart contract uh you know, the language will tell you, hey, you forgot to um, uh, handle this NFT here. It will accidentally get lost if you don't do something about it. In other languages, it just falls on the floor and you lost it. Um, so that's that uh, safety feature that I mentioned. Um, 
And then the other part is sort of if you have these valuable assets on on the chain, uh, it's nice to have them in your account. Uh, if you have your NFT, you can look at it, and that's maybe interesting. Um, but what's really um, the the key feature is that you have this open ecosystem of a lot of different smart contracts out there. And like you you mentioned before, you know you might have a game, uh, you have some NFT, you probably want to use it in some way. And this exactly this um, using it in some way, of course, has again uh, safety problems. You, you know, I might want to share my NFT with you so that you can look at it, uh, right? Uh, that that shouldn't mean that you have the ability to just send it along to someone else. Mm. Um, so access control is a really really difficult problem. Um, and again, like Cadence has um, features in the language built in that allow you to express these these access control things. So you can safely implement very complicated, um, you know, applications that, you know, interact with a lot of different smart contracts and you can be sure that your assets are safe. Mm -hmm. um, and finally, sort of the the uh, topic we're probably gonna get to next is composability. Um, on a lot of other blockchains, sort of these uh, smart contracts, they're like silos. Uh, you can uh, buy an NFT and then you have the NFT and and that's about it, uh, right? But what we want to sort of encourage is this sort of open uh, organic ecosystem where you have a lot of different applications. And like you mentioned, you you have some NFT and then some other application in the future comes along and, and does something with the things or allows you to do more with the things you already have. Um, and no one can foresee that uh, and no one can sort of control it. I, as a user, have the ability to, you know, use the data that I have on the chain, like my NFT, um, and, you know, use all of these different applications, um, and they all sort of work together. Um, that's about it. Excellent. Okay, that's great. I think that's super, that's super helpful to lay a foundation for us here. Um, Jacob, I'd like to ask you a question. Why did you choose to build on Flow and not the other couple hundred other uh, blockchains out there? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I actually got my start in the blockchain world, um, I was in college and I joined a, um, you know, I joined like a, a blockchain club. And at the time I had no idea what it even was. So I was really approaching it from having zero experience. Um, and I, I actually started writing in Solidity um, and encountered a lot of the problems that, you know, Bastion was actually mentioning um, that the, each contract was in a silo, that you had to worry so much about, you know, potentially introducing bugs or security leaks into your contracts. Um, and I felt that that really took away from the learning experience, you know, at a time where I wanted to learn what a smart contract was or what's a transaction or what's composability, you know, you're, you're trying to ask yourself these very, very beginner questions and you're running into very complex problems like security, like, you know, access control and all these things. And it makes it just, it's discouraging, right? But when I discovered Cadence, I immediately fell in love because I was able to focus on so many of those, you know, beginner topics, um, like writing a basic smart contract or, you know, even implementing my first NFT contract without having to worry so much about, you know, if, if I was exposing the wrong thing to the wrong people or allowing people to withdraw my NFTs when I didn't want them to. Um, so I, I personally felt that Cadence was a much better learning language, um, and which, that, which is why I've stuck with it today and why I continue to, you know, try and teach others in Cadence. So it was really about the the language of Cadence itself rather than like the network of Flow or the power of Dapper Labs or the brands that were behind it, such as NBA Top Shot, et cetera. Hey? 
Yeah, for me, I actually, it sounds, I guess, kind of harsh, but I personally, I didn't really care too much about, um, you know, the, the, the huge products that were behind it. I, I purely, um, you know, fell in love because of Cadence, um, and have stayed because of Cadence. So yeah, exactly. Jacob, that's like the, the nerdiest reason to join a, a community that I've ever heard. Yeah, well, honestly, there were other reasons, like uh, Bastion himself, actually, when I first started, um, was helped me learn. And there were some other amazing people um, like Josh, and I can mention so many people from the Float team that actually, um, I really stayed because of them as well. Um, so thank you, Bastion. Um, but yeah, the <laughs> language was definitely a big part. Okay, that's really good. So, so Lane, can you explain a little bit about um, why composability matters and why Flow is maybe trying to or maybe i should say maybe i should ask it this way why does composability matter and is flow setting itself apart from other blockchains in this in this movement yeah absolutely so composability matters because it is the the secret sauce of blockchains i think it is the thing that gives us the 100x user improvements and the 100x um just society improvements that that are demanded if you're going to claim that you're going to ask people to move to an entirely new system and platform and so composability at, at its very core is a, a challenge to the way that we coordinate ourselves. And it says sort of in, in as few words as I can use that collaboration is better than competition. Mm. And that is a, a really distinct change from how businesses typically work. It's, it's different from how you typically think about sort of like the profit making, career making, business making exercise. It instead says, um, something that we observed on CryptoKitties that was really profound. It says work together and make more instead of competing apart. Mm. And what we saw in CryptoKitties when we first launched that smart contract on a public blockchain, which really is the essence of what you need to enable composability. And so Flow also is a smart contract compatible public blockchain, smart contracts written in cadence instead of solidity, but the, the core tenant is the same. Um, what we saw with CryptoKitties was that those smart contracts could be layered on top of. They acted by default as sort of like a perfect public API. And that is um, this liquid gold when you're trying to make products that are are additive to the experience. And so, so often when you're launching something, you're like, oh, how do I get people's attention? How do I get users? And it's like, here, there are already users and there are already attention. They're just looking for more stuff to do. Like they already are excited about these cats. And so we gave people the opportunity to just add to that experience. Like they got to just jump on the CryptoKitties bandwagon and add um, the, the example we love using is cats. People added accessories to these cats. And as a result, there was sort of more to do with the cats. Um, the cats could also be put into games and sort of their traits would determine their performance in the games and it would help them win races. The point was just that there was this collaborative, creative channel opened by having the product written on a public blockchain smart contract that wasn't available to us previously. And as DAP developers, we were like, oh my God, this is amazing. We never would have been able to make that feature, but people love it and they're having a great time. We wouldn't have, like for us to coordinate, expend the resources to target such a specific channel, you know, rational, like in a sort of business rationale wouldn't have ever made sense, but there were absolutely people there who absolutely needed to be served. And there were people who the cost did make sense for. And now that community gets to be served in a way that they otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't have been. And so it's this very compelling model, not only to improve the experience for all of the users, but also to like really address marginalized communities and, and folks that maybe would otherwise go unserved by the product. And so, um, 
Composability is just, it's so special because it, it really changes the way that products are built. It says build on top of existing best in class, build on top of an existing community. When you have standards that by default respect their rights and their privacy and their data and their ownership as is made possible with cadence as Bastion was explaining to us, then people get to just innovate. They get to just build on top and build creative new compelling things on top of what's already there. And so Flow really is setting itself apart to enable this, not only because the smart contract language is specifically designed to work with that level of complexity where experiences are interacting with each other after the fact um, and access control is sort of preserved across those experiences, but it also has a state space that scales to a level of community where it's feasible for those interactions to happen for a whole community where they can have a complex experience as a large group, which on other chains would be um, sort of divided or broken up into smaller subgroups that are easier for the chain to manage. The term that they often use for that is sharding, um, side chains, state channels. Like there's, there's thousands of technical terms for this, but basically everybody else says, once it gets too big and complex, we'll just throw it over there. And mm. I'm like, no, the big complex thing is what makes it social, is what makes it cool and interesting. And so Flow really at its core said, make sure that it's possible for these things to exist simultaneously for whole communities and that communities continue to collaborate and create on top of them. One thing you mentioned um, kind of halfway through there is the value that flow adds to underrepresented populations. So I, I, wanna, I want you to kind of explain that a little bit because I think one challenge that Web3 has as, a, as an image issue is that it doesn't add value to society. It's just like a get rich quick scheme or it's a Ponzi or whatever. Now, when you kind of pull into, well, this can help underrepresented populations or people in poverty or, or whatever you're referring to there, um, I think that's really interesting and maybe compelling. Can you break that out for us? Yeah, definitely. And I'll, But I'll try and keep it as concrete as just the... <clears throat> so let, let, if we could just distill things down, like, you know, simple, simplify the world state mm -hmm. for a second. There are people who get served and there are people who don't and the reasons for that are really complicated and often systemic but what it often boils down to is a business somewhere or a business decision maker making a decision that like this group is not valuable profitable to serve and this one is and that's a cold hard shitty truth of it mm. and that's absolutely not good enough but we have to change the value function. We can't just say, well, you got to do better. You got to serve everybody because the response to that is consistently we're like, oh, we, we can't cover the costs, you know, fine, we will, but then we're, we're upping prices and it's like, well, this is not sustainable. And so where I think Web3 offers a new channel at this problem entirely and where it lets us change, yeah, sort of change the value function is it says everyone definitionally is deserving of a good user experience. The standard of living for all users, for all people should be the same. We're just gonna set that as the bar. That's what Web3 says. It says everybody gets to use these standards, everyone's rights regardless of race or ethnicity or um, region of origin, doesn't matter. They all get the same rights. That's just table stakes. And then it goes further to say, we're gonna let you know, sort of um, significant parties bootstrap the process of building um sort of a, an initial mvp experience that makes it compelling for people to be here but then we're going to let our application be open enough that the people who don't get served by our first mvp because we always any first version of a product has to sort of definitely shouldn't be, be prioritized and serve a, a subset of folks that's always true you know that's not a marginalized communities thing it's just a focus thing you, you start in one place 
And now the product is designed inherently to be open enough that people can add to the experience for any of the communities that weren't initially represented very easily. They can tap into that first drop, the first marketplace, the first set of transactions and, and add on for other communities, knowing that the platform is going to enforce the rights at the same level and standard as everyone else. And the experience is something that they will tap into and get to add on to rather than offer as sort of like a side or petition the core group that they need to add this experience for um, mm. a marginalized community or, or a segment that just was sort of deemed not significant by the product team for whatever reason. I, I think that's really great. I mean, at DigiBuddies, we're trying to figure out, you know, how do we engage with kids on the blockchain? How do we engage maybe even with kids with disabilities in the blockchain? I mean, these are um, these are underrepresented groups, certainly in the world of um, uh, of Web3, maybe in tech in general. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that. Um, I'm not sure who the best person to answer this question. Maybe it's you, Bastian. Um, Lane, maybe maybe you can correct me. So let's talk about attachments. So what are attachments? Who's the, who should answer this? Um, you? We, well, maybe, I mean, can I, yeah, maybe I'll just start us um, with some context on attachments. Yeah. So one of the really special features of Cadence that um, uh, Bastian was talking about is is this composability thing mm -hmm. and the, the ability for the language to enable composability. And um, the hats on cats example is, it, the cat is an NFT and the hat's an NFT and the fact that those two things can exist together as a cat with a hat is um, sort of its own programming problem and so in Cadence we solved that with something called attachments and um, at this point I would love for Bastian to jump in with um, the details of sort of why and how we did that but I think before we start the conversation I would love to preface this by saying in the last Web3 prof conversation mm -hmm. that uh, Jarrett and I had I made a statement that composability is very much um, in its definition phase. I think as an industry, we're all sort of storming around what this superpower is and what it should be and how we define it. So um, both composability and attachments are still what I would consider under design. Mm. Um, and so I, to be clear, they are a feature that's available in Cadence now that you can use and people are using, but um, exactly how that will continue to unfold is something that I think we're all actively thinking about and, mm -hmm. and trying to better understand based on how people want to use it. And so um, I would love for this part of the conversation to sort of be a, a dialogue of like what you're most interested in seeing from attachments because it is such a new new feature. Um, and then Jacob has, uh, from the community perspective, also done a ton of work with it and knows um, sort of how it's working in practice. And then Bastion is the right person to tell us how um, the, the design works now and, and would work in the future if we wanted to make some of those changes. That's great. Okay, Bastion. I mean, lay it out for us here. Um, yeah, I just wanted to quickly add to that whole composability point that we discussed before. Um, wh when I started uh, working on Flow, I had exactly the same question, sort of, you know, like what is that unique feature that blockchain uh, brings to the table that's different from sort of the, the Web2 world, sort of traditional applications on the internet. Um, and the, the thing that convinced me most was... Um, not only like Lane described, sort of the APIs are open and everyone can can access them, but uh, the, the I think the the most appealing thing to me is this whole idea that uh, these applications uh, they are there and they are there sort of forever because they're run by the people. Uh, and it might sound odd, but like if you, you let, let's take some application like Facebook or Twitter today, they're like or Reddit, they're like social applications, social networks. 
they're backed by companies. If the company goes away, their servers go away, these applications disappear along with all the value that the users created. Um, and there are also like existing applications that build on top of Facebook or they, you know, build on top of Twitter, all that goes away. Um, but in a blockchain environment, these are like applications that are basically run and paid for by the users. Uh, even if the company, the entity that cr maybe created it initially goes away, these applications live forever. So that we have this not only like openly accessible, um, you know, application, but it is there sort of if you want it. Um, I think that is sort of the most appealing thing for me. Um, uh, but yeah, regarding attachments. So attachments um, came out of that uh, idea that we had seen with CryptoKitties. Um, you build an application as a smart contract. You have some maybe like NFT um, and you have all of these ideas maybe that you know of, oh, I maybe want to add a feature in the future that uh, allows me to do X. Uh, but there are a lot of other things that you can't know yet, right? Like there are all these cool uh, features that you will never come up with uh, on your own. Um, but in the blockchain environment, you kind of have to make this trade-off. Like you have to, at least on other blockchains, uh, get it right the first time. If you write a smart contract and you put it on the blockchain, that's it. That is the code. It will never change. You can never add onto it. That is set in stone. That is a good feature because, well, everyone can trust that it keeps working the same way as it did before. On the other hand, you can also not add new features to it. Um, and often it's not you who comes up with new features. It's third-party uh, developers that come up maybe with a, you know additional cool functionality like, hey, I can put uh, some kind of hats on the kitties. We would have never thought of that idea, but it's a cool idea, right? So why, why should it not work? Um, in the old uh, way, that wasn't really possible. So how actually CryptoKitties worked, it was like the hat said that it was attached to the kitty. It wasn't the kitty saying, I have hat. If you look at the kitty, it still was just the kitty. Um, and then if you look at the hat, it said like, you know, oh, by the way, I'm attached to this. So all these applications sort of worked, but they would have to know specifically, hey, there are also hats, by the way. Uh, and maybe there's like another kind of additional, you know, accessory. You have to build specific support for all of these different things that are being put on because the, the relationship is sort of, you know, flipped around. You can't just look at the kitty and discover all the things that are attached to it. Um, so in Cadence, we have this feature, it's a, it's relatively new, which sort of allows you to, exactly to do that. You can, as a third-party developer, extend an existing, uh, you know, object. Uh, that object, first of all, doesn't have to sort of, uh, you know, approve that this attachment can happen. So if I have an NFT and there is a third-party developer coming along and they want to put something on it, if I, as a user, decide that's a cool thing to do, like I want to put a hat on my kitty, cool. Uh, no one can control if this should happen or not. Sort of that's the first thing. The user's in control. They can extend their objects. And the other thing is that the developer could currently also um, allow this sort of you know, extension, but you would have to build in sort of dedicated support for it. You have to kind of know, oh, my kitty has to 
or, or might be in the future extended. So let's add support that it might get a hat at some point, but still it's, it's pretty limited, right? Like you cannot foresee how in the future there will be new use cases that you want to enable. So you don't have to in cadence, you just uh, build the application uh, the way you do and future extensions are possible by future developers and future users and they can sort of extend at their own will. I think that's sort of the core uh, idea in a, in a nutshell. Can I ask a question? So with the ability to change a smart contract in cadence, does that put into question a level of um, security breakdown? Yeah, that's a, it's always a trade-off. So what all of these languages and blockchains sort of have to do is find a trade-off. On one hand, you have flexibility and sort of you know, open ecosystems. Everything is working together. Everything is flexible. And on the other hand, you know, the other side is safety and security. And you have to find some kind of you know compromise between the two. Um, but instead of like saying that there is only one correct way of making that trade-off, which on some other blockchains is the case, uh, in, in flow and cadence, you as a developer have the choice. Uh, so, so maybe to break it down a little bit more, um, in, in, some, in a lot of other blockchains, you have uh, this behavior that once you put the code onto the blockchain, it's set in stone, it can't change anymore. And the trade-off is that well, it's super secure uh, whatever code is there will never change. Like if I build on top of it, that's great. I can trust it. Um, on the other hand, for a developer, it's inflexible. Right? Like I cannot change the code anymore. Like two things. One, there might be a little bug. Uh, what if this little bug is now set in stone? I just want to fix the little bug that was there. Everything is just perfect. All the features are great. It's this teeny tiny bug I want to fix. I can't. Right, like it's set in stone, um, or a new feature idea comes along. Well, how do you add the feature if it's set in stone? You can't. And sort of the the blockchain environment made the the, the decision, the trade off that no safety and security goes over feature development and bug fixing. Um, and if you talk to a lot of developers, of course, like uh, they will tell you, well, you'd never get it right the the first time. Like I don't know. I, Every developer, you know, knows that you just can't write bug-free code. It's it's almost impossible. Whatever the language guarantees, you have you still have like a logic error where like you you add numbers up the wrong way or whatever, right? Like it's sort of uh, human uh, nature that you make mistakes. Um, so yeah, like there should be a way to fix those first of all, and also there's this um, maybe like. I would say like beat up period in a in a uh, sort of applications life. You know, like I don't know if you know 10, 20 years ago, you had like these beat up stickers on, on Twitter or somewhere. Mm. It was like sort of an application that's still figuring out the business idea and the, the model, right? It's not, it works and people can use it, but it's not quite there yet. Um, and you can do that on Flow. You can put up code, it works. People can start using it and depending on it, um, and then you can lock it down and say like, oh, now I want to, you know, solidify it more. I want to give other developers building on top of it sort of ability to trust the code more. And so then you make it more and more uh, less and less changeable. That's maybe the better way to put it. Um, yeah, I think 
Do you have any more questions regarding that? No, I think I think that makes sense. Um, I'd like to hear from you, Jacob, as far as like your thoughts on um, composability and attachments. Definitely. Um, I think the reason that um, I, I know Bastian already mentioned this, uh, but just to highlight it is that it's so attachments are so cool because they allow um, you know third party developers to build upon um, you know pre existing stuff. And what I mean by that is. You know, right now um, in the flow world, the the way you you know implemented composability was you had some sort of you know asset, and then at the time of project creation, or you know in other words, contract deployment, the developer had to say to you know themselves, okay, at, at this point in time, I have to add some sort of you know um, data inside this uh, asset that says, you know what, if I want to add new features, I have to. Um, you know, put this put this data in there now. Otherwise, I won't be able to later. Um, however, with attachments, what's so cool is that you can you know deploy code, you can deploy your project, and then even after the fact, you can have um, you know assets uh, be attached to them, um, and you can have again third party developers building upon you know your existing assets. So what this looks like, um, you know, is you know for example, with you know NBA Top Shot already exists and is out there. All these Top Shot moments are out there. However, a community of people that, you know, really love, uh, I don't know, one specific player, one specific team can, you know, make their own little gamified system and attach cool features to their NFTs and stuff like that. And, you know, that, you know, community can care about those kind of things, while another community that, care, that cares about a different team or different player doesn't have to worry about those attachments um, at all. They can worry about their own stuff. And so it really, um, you know, attachments, while there has been composability on Flow thus far, um, attachments really enable like another layer of composability where, you know, anyone can build upon existing assets and, and stuff. So uh, I'm not sure who's, who's the best answer to this, but so what happens if, um, so, so composability becomes a common feature in flow. Um, you know, we build an NFT project, we, you know, build some level of composability with another project without their permission, uh, and they're not happy about it. Uh, is that, is that going to be a thing? Is that a problem? Um, do projects have the ability to control something like that? Like at DigiBuddies, I want my DigiBuddies to be able to wear doable, uh, to wear doodles wearables. But what if doodles is like, that's terrible. I hate DigiBuddies. I don't want that to happen. How do we deal with that? Uh, flips <laughs> to me. I guess that answers who's answer this one. Um, you seemed keen to answer that one. This, yeah, well, yeah so this is a this is a hard problem um and the the hard problem is as much a technical one as a social one so um let, let's get into the technical part of it in a second but i think the interesting social problem here is how far do brands how far are brands willing to lean into their communities um like how are they are they going to engage in this more peer-to-peer -peer based system where they truly feel like they are on level ground with their customers and it's it's based on reciprocity and we stop using terms like lifetime value and instead start looking at terms like standard of living and um in the context of brands looking at all of these creations and being like oh i'm excited about um this or i'm not excited about this but i see that my users are are they going to be willing to have sort of um like unverified versions of brand experience that are extended for the sake of just literally serving their customers like just a commitment to the fact that their community is diverse and there is not one version of the brand filter that's going to fit for everyone and if if they're willing to embrace that then i think this is hopefully a problem we won't we will we will address by filtering experiences based on segments and so the brand can have sort of a um a most front facing this is our version of the product 
these are our official plugins. And then it can have sort of like the hacked versions that are, um, you know, as we often see with sort of the um, side communities, just like a more fringe experience where it's like, oh, this is this brand plus um, this brand X or whatever in it. And it has these extended experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll just try and like come up with nice creative design ways to make it clear that the brand maybe hasn't totally signed off on this thing, but they are willing to tap into it for the sake of engaging and, and supporting their community. So there is a, at a social level, there's a filtering that can happen because the brand is never forced to serve content built for it. Like their front end is always still driven by them. They still get to be the ones presenting the experience and they can decide to filter in or out these community additions. I hope that we see them filter more in because I think it'll add a bunch of value, but they might choose not to and they're able to do that. So technically, and, and we can um, pass it to, to Jacob and Bastion here if, if they want to jump in on sort of technically what you can and can't force can I, developers to do. Jacob, can I ask you, what are your thoughts on, okay, so we're in this world of decentralization. We've given up control as a brand. That's kind of a core tenet of everything that's part of Web3. But yet there's this risk that comes along when we engage in what we're talking about attachments and composability. How, do, how, how does this play out from your perspective? From from a from a social perspective first. Um. Yes. I mean, I I definitely agree with Lane in that. Um. You know, while you know, I, I guess while this blockchain world does allow you know you know composable things to happen, and I think like if a you know if if a brand is sort of approaching blockchain, you know, that is just like an inherent thing that is like you know allowed in the blockchain space. However, you know, these people can, you know, filter based on, you know, what they are actually what they actually care about. And so this sort of gets back to the example I was talking about before, where like, you know, while a user can attach something to their asset or whatever it is, you know, they are, you know, they can be the only ones that really care about that. And, you know, whatever website or whatever um, thing is happening, like, for example, on NBA Top Shot, NBA Top Shot's never going to show, uh, you know, those attachments if they don't really care about them. Um, and so, the, so they can be easily filtered and ignored and only, you know, shown through communities that actually uh, care about those attachments themselves. So I think it's, you know, I, I personally, I don't really see it being that big of a problem. Um, but, you know, that's, I guess that's just my initial thoughts. So Bastian, what about from a technical perspective? How are we, um, how are we seeing this? Um, so the technical perspective is very much sort of uh, the, the the social one, um, right? Like we can encode any kind of stance that we have. Um, and what I mean by that is like, like, if you look at other blockchains again and, and maybe make the comparison, um, how they represent ownership, for example, is, is very different from how it works on Flow. Um, if you have a certain NFT, it actually doesn't, you don't really own it. Uh, what I mean by that, it's like, there is the smart contract and it says like, oh, a uh, user, you know, uh, X, Y, like, uh, you know, Bastion owns this kitty. That's in the smart contract itself. And the smart contract can control what you can do with that object and what you can't do. So there's like sort of um, greater influence because sort of the control is and the ownership is in a different place. In Flow, the data is in your account. If you have that NFT, you store it uh, you have full control. You can uh, get rid of it or send it somewhere or do whatever you want. You can add attachments to it. You are the owner. That's the stance that we, we are sort of making on Flow. Um, and likewise, there, again, for the attachments, you as a user can choose, like, I want to add this, I don't know, attachment to my Top Shot moment because I would like to. Like, it's not the the 
you know original sort of author of that uh, contract and that top shot moment who can decide because I don't own the data it's it, it's it's mine I I bought it uh, who should be in control um, so I think that's a good thing uh, to put the user in control um, and because it allows sort of these very open ecosystems where new experiences are created um, because of interactions between you know, existing and upcoming new contracts that have never been imagined before. Um, so currently it's not really possible for someone to forbid that. And we had this philosophical question, well, should it be possible for someone to, to control, you know, I can put a, a certain, I don't know, a signature on my top shot moment. Should that be like prevented by someone and, and by who and how and, and, Sort of like currently the the stance is that it's like not preventable um, to kind of cater to the to the user who's who owns and controls that data. Um, it could change. I don't know. Anything is possible. I don't have a. Uh, it, there's no technical limitations on on either side. Maybe to put it the other way. Bastin, are um, attachments a new thing for Flow? Because it seems like you're talking about like hats on cats um which i'm assuming was a while ago um so what's the context here as far as like uh, the development of this so the history is that uh yeah with crypto kitties we saw that this sort of thing suddenly happened i i don't i'm not really familiar if there were a lot of other uh examples of that you know in existing environments back then but it, it was very very popular uh both CryptoKitties and these third-party applications. Um, I think on other blockchains, uh, they developed uh, standards for this, and there are probably more applications today. Um, like I mentioned, this this ownership relationship is kind of weird, where like the thing that you attach says what it is attached to. Uh, there's also another standard uh, on the Ethereum and Solidity blockchain where the ownership uh, sort of uh, is flipped around, sort of in the natural way where you know the thing that you attach it to says what it what it has like you know the kitty can say oh i have a hat um so they they sort of added support for it and in, in, in parallel on cadence uh we started initially designing this feature like two years ago and together with the community sort of you know thought through use cases what just like you asked what are things we want to allow uh what are things we might want to prevent um and sort of through a lot of discussions i had a lot of calls and a lot of um sort of prototyping we kind of uh, finished recently i think end of last year the, the feature and it's available now sort of it's it was already possible before but uh in a in a very um i wouldn't say clunky way but you'd have to like really know that oh, if I write this NFT, I also have to make sure that there might be future applications. So I have to add support for it. If you forgot, it wasn't possible anymore. And now this sort of um, is a lot nicer because you you just think about your use case. I'm implementing the NFT top shot moment. That's it, right? Like I don't have to also think about future use cases. Um, the feature sort of allows you to worry less and it takes care of that you know possibility of future extension um and that's sort of the 
the mantra of cadence. Um, there are all these things that you uh, have to worry about uh, as a smart contract developer, like safety and flexibility and interoperability and uh, you know composable composability and and sort of there are dedicated features in the language that help you to to do these things so that you have to do less because every smart contract developer has kind of these same needs. You know, they they want uh, their assets to be safe. They want their game to be easily implemented. They, they want to just worry about the game logic, not constantly just worry about um, sort of low-level details of like, oh, if if I, you know, make this little buck, will my assets be stolen? Uh, so attachments are like what we call sugar, uh, sort of in technical terms. It was possible before, but is a lot, lot nicer now and you have to basically not do anything. It's just given to you for free. Excellent. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to ask each one of you the same question. And, and then after that, I'd love to give you guys the opportunity to ask each other questions. I don't know how often the three of you have been on a podcast before together. I'm going to assume it's the first time. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd love for you guys to ask each other questions, would be, which would be cool. But um, maybe just in a few sentences, what does, and maybe this isn't possible, but what does it, what does this look like in three years or what does this look like in five years? I mean, even what does it, what does attachments and composability look like next year? What do you guys think? Lane, since you're here in front of me, you get to start us off. <laughs> um, I think it looks like the richest, densest experience you've ever seen. I think probably the combination of composability and attachments is going into a truly immersive experience that starts with your friends. You enter it with your friends. It feels like a, a really good house party. <laughs> and then, and then you walk in and all your favorite stuff is there and your favorite stuff works exactly the way that you expect it to. And your, your friends get to see the stuff that you like the most and they get to be excited about it. And, um, you get to share experience over that. So I think, um, <clears throat> The, the house party example is one that I like using because it, um, it, it, it grounds all of this in what I think everyone's trying to get back to, which is like social, cultural entertainment experiences that just feel like the time you want to have, you know, it's like you hang out with your friends when you know you want to be treated well, and you're going to do the things you want to do. And that's what the next internet is. It's not you being subjected to a barrage of stuff that algorithms think you should see. It's mm -hmm. the stuff you and your friends choose. And it's the stuff that you all <clears throat> sort of let inside your collective house, you know, it's the housewarming presents, it's the, the new pair of kicks that you like show off that that's the experience. And I think we're just going to replicate that more and more in the world of digital and composability is going to be the thing that makes that possible such that all these currently disparate experiences on flow and, and maybe other chains um, have an opportunity to come together such that you can both um, like yeah, have have some really, really cool new doodle swag on and show off your NBA moment that's like <clears throat> hanging out on the wall of your house or something. Mm. Um, all of that, being able to speak the same language and show up as a representation of you as a person will be, um, I think, a, a really big part of people feeling like their digital lives can live online or their lives can live more online, uh, yeah. digital and physical. Okay, that's great. Uh, Jacob, where do you think we see attachments and composability in the next one, three or five years. Yeah, I'm going to go with uh, what Lane said. Plus, I think that there's going to be a um, increase in, I guess, like DAO culture where, um, you know, you see like these main, you know, DAOs and then sub communities or sub DAOs within that, um, you know, main DAO. 
Um, because I think, you know, in communities like Top Shot or Doodles or, or really any project, to be honest, um, if we think like many years down the road, there's going to be individual communities of a few people, many people, whatever it is that um, are spinning up their own experiences, their own uh, little, you know, gamified stuff or their own uh, challenges and rewards and all these kind of things based on, you know, uh, attachments that they define and they, um, you know, control. So I think, that that's what I think. I think there's going to be a lot more DAO, um, you know, culture that gets added into the flow ecosystem and uh, elsewhere as well. Excellent. Oh, that's great. Um, Bastion. Yeah, I I don't know what it will look like. I I really hope it will look like that. Um, and and sort of, I think the uh, it, it's still like a lot of people just don't know, like developers and users knowing of what's possible um sort of you had applications like crypto kitties and kitty hats like you know a while ago um and it's still surprising that a lot of developers that you talk to um either from sort of a traditional applications or even smart contract developers they don't really know that these sort of I don't know, richer experiences are possible. Sort of what Lane describes, I think, is still like, uh, you know, it's 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 possible to to implement today, but I think a lot of developers just, they heard of, uh, you know, a fungible token, it's it's money on the blockchain, and they heard of an NFT uh, that's maybe like a picture, and that's all they think is possible. Um, I, I really, really hope that sort of the technical abilities that we you know, provide that they are used to build all these rich applications that um, Lane and uh, Jacob described so nicely, you know, allow them to build communities that, you know, are sort of organic open ecosystems that are not like controlled by, uh, you know, business entities. I think that's possible today. I, I really, really want to see more of that. Um, and it's also kind of like, yeah, like I think there will be, hopefully applications that are not technically possible today. Um, and, and we should really figure out ways to enable them to, to be built. Um, yeah, I don't have nothing concrete, but I think, um, I mean, kind of what you're explaining is really, you're, you're kind of saying like all this cool stuff can happen today, but developers either don't have the vision or the knowledge that it's possible, right? They don't like, they don't, they don't think it's possible or they don't know that it's possible because they, exactly they kind of feel like they're already being innovative because they're building smart contracts. So they're like, Oh, we're on the, we're on the leading edge of the world right now. But what you guys have developed is something that's saying, well, no, you're not really actually on the leading edge anymore. This is the new thing. And, um, and, and I guess then it's the responsibility of the flow community to say, to get the word out there. So share the podcast. This is actually, that was actually just a commercial for people to share the podcast. <laughs> I exactly, led you guys down exactly. the path. Um, okay, so do you guys have questions for each other? Is there anything that you would like to to know about this from each other? Ashton, I want to know what you pe wish people knew about Cadence. If there was one thing that you could just like shout from the rooftops and be like, guys, this is the Cadence thing. What, <laughs> what would you want it to be? I think it's the composability thing, like all the things we talked about. Um, I think it's much harder elsewhere and I, and I think, yeah, it's, it's underrated. Um, and I, like I mentioned before, I wish it was used more than, uh, for just like, oh, I'm trying to build yet another NFT that has a picture in it. Um, sort of please, uh, use these, uh, cool features for, for more, um, uh, 
and there's probably more we could do um but there is already a lot of uh, functionality there that's not used to its full potential so that would be my, my number one i love that jacob can you answer the same question <laughs> I wish I had a unique answer, but I'm going <laughs> to say the same thing. I actually would have answered the same thing because, uh, you know, we actually, we saw a lot of um, amazing projects come out of the recent Flow Hackathon that had to do with composability. Um, you know, that's uh, different NFT projects, uh, you know, working together to build like a cool, like, uh, playground experience where like different NFTs can battle against each other. And I saw one project, with, which was like a Pokemon-esque sort of game where like a, a doodle was battling a, Flovatar. So there's a lot of cool composable stuff that's going on right now. And uh, I just, I wish that was seen more. And do you think it's going to be seen soon? Like when, when is the user experience going to be good enough that I can buy a couple NFTs and battle in a playground or something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's like Bastion said, it, it is possible today. Um, and we did see that with the, the Flow Hackathon. Um, I just think it's going to take a, probably a little bit more um, time for, you know, I guess like it's individual sub communities to sort of get their users excited about stuff like that. Um, so, for example, like sub communities within the Doodles ecosystem that, you know, build these cool experiences for, their, for you know, these users to, to battle it out and have fun and whatever it is. Um, and also discover more things than just like battling and, you know, whatever that may be. Um, but I think it's, I, I think we're sort of in that era now where, you know, people are learning about it and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. If I, if I can add one um, posit to your question, I think it'll, it'll take a killer application that obviously illustrates there being multiple different avenues of a product. So Mattel's uh, currently looking at building on flow and um I, I'm not privy to exactly what they're thinking about, but a, an example that would excite me greatly, um, Hot Wheels, we, we probably all remember those like great little toy cars and they have like the orange track that you build around your house and you drop them on the track and they go all over the place and maybe you trade with them with your friends. I think there were iterations of them later that you could like add parts to and mod them sort of. And so um, when we get examples of things where people are like, oh, right, a car sometimes is used in this context, in this context, and it's clear that you change the parts, and it's clear that you change the color, and it's clear that these are things that multiple generations use. Um, and, you know, yeah, we have toy cars and we have real cars. I think examples like that will really help people fill in the blanks of like, oh, composability can be all of these things. And right now, a, you know, Doodles is phenomenal and, it, and it's a, a really compelling product, but it's already a step beyond. Uh, it's like a plus one of abstraction where people are, are already imagining things that are new. And if we give them something that they understand and then ask them to fill in the blanks with what's possible, I think it helps sort of um, build out that experience in a way where people are like, oh, composability is the fact that this car goes on different tracks and I can take my car to my friend's house and race it on his track and it's still going to be the same car and it's still going to roll and it's still going to abide by the laws of gravity as you'd expect of a physical car. Because right now, in the digital space that's not always true right like if you have a car in one account and your friend is on a different service on a different account you don't get to take your cars to each other's houses you just live in separate accounts doing separate things mm -hmm. and so um just more more example like like they're discussing about the hackathon but especially examples that really naturally lend themselves to lots of different facets of development, I think will will really help put a finer point on people understanding that composability is sort of the, the creation of a core nugget of value that a community is excited about, and then the ability to add value to all of those different facets in, um, in really natural 
natural ways that make it exciting to buy more cars because there's more stuff that you can do with them in in the hot wheels example so who when we look at this um you know taking different kind of ecosystems of characters and putting them together like jacob the example you gave how do the, how do we deal with kind of the awkwardness of the fact that a doodle looks very different than a flovatar which will which, which looks very different to a cryptoy or whatever and how do you how do you uh, you know, you want to take a doodle wearable and wear it on this guy and you want to take a Flovatar weapon and use it in a doodle or whatever. Like the art is so different. It's it's they seem to be so disconnected and unrelated. How do you overcome those type of awkward kind of user experiences? Jacob, I want to hear from you. So that's the cool part, right? Because um, the idea is that the developer or the person who's creating that game gets to decide um, mm. what they think is valuable. They can, you know, value more, and you know, users will understand those rules and play in that game. But anyone else can create a different game where something else is valued more. You know, let's say a Doodle's hat is valued more than a, you know, Top Shot play, or you know, a Flovatar sock is worth more than a Flover sock, you know, so there's a lot of different uh, rules, but, you know, people can define their own rules and then build games depending on that. So, um, yeah, I guess that's my short answer to that. Do you have any thoughts, Bastian? Um, not for that question specifically. Uh, I'd like a point uh, to make for sort of what we still want to see or what will uh, hopefully happen. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at the existing sort of game space, there's like, uh, you know, Jacob focused very much sort of on the community, uh, you know, the hackathon happening and the community building interesting applications that sort of get the composability idea. But I think also companies like bigger game companies, they start to get this idea. Um, if you look at games like Mine, Minecraft and Roblox, uh, sort of community-driven development platforms in a sense. Um, now, you know, Epic, they announced that uh, they allow uh, sort of content creation of Fortnite but like, I think companies are starting to get this idea that it's not just that we have to build uh, this sort of, you know, application or, or game. And it, that's that uh, sort of this modding and extension and collaboration by the users community um, an idea is sort of taking foothold. And I think that will increase ever more, right? Like, um, hopefully it will extend to uh, blockchain space where these companies also realize sort of the potential uh, that, you know, building these these uh, extendable platforms if, if you would, or, or games even makes more sense on a blockchain because then it's like truly open um, and developed uh, users will also like appreciate that. Um, but it needs more education. So I'm very, very, very glad that, uh, you know, Jacob is probably the front runner in that space. So sort of educating uh, both developers and users about sort of like this potential, this untapped potential of like, if users would only know that it would be, that it is possible that you can take one game avatar into another game. And yes, it's maybe awkward, but why, why shouldn't it be possible? Like I bought maybe for a lot of money, these, these like in-game items, why shouldn't I be but it's currently, I think, not happening because people are so used to it being siloed that they can't even see what it, what is possible. Um, and opening their eyes is like the, the, probably the, the biggest challenge to to you know really having these breakout applications, like opening the eyes to users and developers um, at the same time. I think that that's such an an excellent explanation from both of you. I think that's great. It's more like I think basically what you're saying is it's 
is really we just need to change the perspective of the user and be like, hey, this is this is okay. Like this is not an this is not an accident. This is not um, an issue. You can have anything is really possible. And if you don't like it, then there's another platform for that thing as well, which is very cool. I'd like to wrap things up here with final thoughts. Um, is there anything that you guys would like to throw in um, as an addition to what we've been talking about? Maybe a thought that you've had that you think is important for the flow ecosystem. Lane, do you got anything? Um, well, we, we covered, we covered so much. So um, I'm going to throw it to Jacob. Um, I think we probably got, yeah. <laughs> we got it all. Bastion, do you got anything? No, I think that that was great. Um, you you touched on so many uh, points, and we had so many interesting questions that weren't uh, just technical, but also you know the, the social aspect. That's like the the yeah. It was it was great. Thank you for for having us. That's that's great. Thanks so much for being with me here today, Lane. You made this happen. Well, I mean, all of you showed up. So thank you guys so much for doing this. Um, very impromptu. And um, well, I guess actually quickly, we should ask you if you had any um, DigiBuddies is, is coming out pretty soon. And um, it, yeah, is there anything you want the community to know about DigiBuddies and um, why it's using attachments? Sure. So I think what's important for DigiBuddies is, is a couple different things. We want to see kids engage in Web3 without knowing it's Web3. So we're calling them digital collectibles, not NFTs, uh, because uh, we feel like uh, there's a much greater opportunity for parents really to get their kids involved. Um, and we want to really raise awareness around accessibility and inclusion. Um, kids with disabilities, all of our dis all of our DigiBuddies will have a disability and a superpower. They'll be in sit skis and ice hockey sledges and hand bikes and power wheelchairs and things like that. Um, and, uh, and we're really hoping to engage kids in kind of opening their eyes to um, what it's like to express your emotions and what it's like to deal with um, having a disability and, 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 and what is it like to be different. Um, and what we really want to do is we want to uh, engage in layers of composability to partner with other uh, NFT projects on Flow um, to allow maybe their wearables to be worn on our DigiBuddies or, uh, or weapons from Flovatar to be used in our game or things like that. And I mean, we don't know what that's going to look like, which I think is at the heart of the conversation. Nobody really knows what all these things are going to be, but we're certainly trying to work towards that um, really based on the vision that you guys cast, which is super exciting. But at the end of the day, we want kids to have really healthy, vibrant digital experiences that are hopefully not addictive, that are educational, and that are actually helpful to their well-being and their growth. And we hope that um, the technology that you guys have developed uh, will really allow us to get there with, with a, hopefully a whole community of kids. So follow us on Instagram and Twitter and, uh, and check out digibuddies.xyz. I really appreciate your guys' time, uh, Jacob, Bastian, uh, Lane. It's been really great chatting with each one of you. Um, I've, I have learned a whole lot about things that I, I really wanted to, to gain an understanding of. So thanks so much for being with uh, us here today for each of you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye.